The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au All right, take your Bibles please and we'll go to the book of Exodus. Book of Exodus in chapter 3. I'm going to read this this famous, well-known passage about Moses and his conversation with God. We'll just leave a little bit of it. One of my favorite characters that I owe so much to, which I regret I will never meet this side of eternity, is a man named R.C. Sproul. Uh, if you're in theology, you any kind of reading, you'll know the name of R.C. Sproul. He is a uh, Presbyterian minister and a theologian. Uh, he was quite a character. I was hearing some stories about his life this week. He, one of the things I often do in my office, if I've got something sort of technical and not too uh, mind-engaging, I'll often put on uh, sermons and so on. And sometimes I'll put on Q&As from these big conferences where all these great preachers come and they'll have question and answer back and forth. And one of the ones that I heard, and it was just a tiny little one, it was only about a two-minute clip of it. And somebody asked the question, uh, and the question, the gist of the question was, um, given the situation in the garden and man's command to Adam and Eve, why was the judgment of God so severe against the man and the woman for their sin? And R.C. Sproul is sitting at the end of this line of, of men answering the question, and he just jumped in, in typical R.C. Sproul fashion, and in his gravelly voice, he, uh, he said, well, he kind of answered the question about, it was God's immense grace. God had promised them in the day that you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. And yet they lived. Adam lived for 900 years and Eve probably something similar. They saw their children's great, great, great grandchildren almost certainly. And it was God's immense grace that they hadn't been destroyed by the holiness of God. And then he, there was kind of a bit of a ripple of laughter at something he said. And he he turned around, and in anger, which was very uncharacteristic of R.C. Sproul, he almost shouted, his voice was came up quite sharply. He said, what's wrong with you people? And then their laughter got bigger, and he bellowed out, I'm serious. He said, that's the problem with the church today. We don't know who God is, and we don't know who man is. And it was just dead silence in this big auditorium. And he said, that's a problem. And I heard that a couple times. And I was thinking about the message tonight and thinking about what I want to do. And we won't get far into it in this month. And we'll have our evening services, not next month, but the one after. Someone gave me advice years ago that one of the ways that you can radically change a church. Not that we need changing in the sense of just change for the sake of change. But change in growth and godliness is preach on the attributes of God. And the question, who is God? We don't know who God is. That's what R.C. Sproul said. We've misunderstood who he is 
and what he's like. And so the questions I want to ask tonight, we're just going to get into this topic a little bit, and we're going to look at one of the attributes of God, and to contemplate something of the incomprehensible God is so great. It lifts the heart and soul. I've been studying all afternoon, and I will get far more out of this than you will, sadly, because I spent about four or five hours this afternoon just going back over and studying and gleaning through verses, and it was such a refreshment to my own heart and soul. But I want to read this passage, Exodus chapter 3, and we'll read from 7 down to the end of verse number 15. And the Lord is speaking to Moses, and he says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and given heed to their cry because of their taskmaster, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of Egypt and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore... Come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall worship God at this mountain. And then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. Now I want you to put that in the back of your mind just for a bit. We're going to come back to it in a little while. God can be known. It's a question that needs to be made loud and clear to all of us that we can know God. God has made it evident within man that he may be known and may know God. So take your Bibles and flip now forward to the New Testament, to the book of Romans and chapter 1. We'll read this section here. Describing God's reasons for his wrath against the people, all of the world. In Romans chapter 1, and beginning at verse number 18, we'll read down to verse number 25. And the Word of God says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. 
Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and forfeited animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, also men abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. God can be known. Verse 19, what may be known of God is evident within us. God made it evident to us. God made the knowledge of himself evident to us within the own hearts of man. There is a sense in man which he has been created. There is a sense, even the most basic thing, you take a little child and you give them each an orange, a group of kids, and you walk up to the one little fellow and you just reach over and you say, I'm just going to take your orange away from you. And the first thing he'll do is he'll look at you with those big eyes and where's my orange? And he might come out with a choking cry. That's not fair. Even when his little heart at a small age, a small child can reach out and grasp that there is a higher reality of right and wrong. And you just broke that right and wrong and took my orange away from me. And he'll be really upset. Man has within him an inherent sense that there is a God. God made the knowledge of him evident to us. And since creation, all these things have been clearly seen. God's invisible attribute. I'll try it again. God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature are there for man to see and behold. You walk out into creation and look around you, look up at the sky, look at the ground, look at the leaves and the tree, look at the oceans and the mountains, look at all of that, look at all that science tells us, and it just shouts out and cries out in a massive chorus without words, there is a God. Psalm 19, the Bible says, The heavens are telling the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. The line has gone out through all the earth, and the utterances to the end of the world. You know what the psalmist is saying? There is an unspoken language that communicates throughout all of creation. Everywhere you go, there is no language barrier. There's no time or distance barrier. There's no translation needs. All of creation testifies there is a God. Man can see it if man would look. And then the psalmist goes on the same psalm, Psalm 19, to speak about God's words and him speaking directly to men. God's words explicitly explain and describe God. The perfect law that restores the soul. The sure testimony that makes wise the simple. The right precepts that rejoice the heart and so on. It's God's word that speaks and says there is a God. I love the fact that Genesis opens up and doesn't say, now you need to understand that there is a God and this is how you know he exists. It just says, in the beginning, God created. His existence is always assumed. It's never proven that way in scripture. God is writing the word. He is giving it to us. The very fact that he's writing declares that he exists. 
So God exists and God can be known. Back in Romans 1, the Bible says that God gave men over to increasing levels of judgment as their refusal to acknowledge God and obey God. In Romans 1.18, the Bible says that men suppress the truth. In other words, they know it's there. They hear it. They see it with their own eyes. And yet, rather than acknowledge it and respond to it, they just push it down. They suppress the truth. In Romans 1.25, men exchanged the truth of God for a lie. So in other words, they knew what they had, but they were willing instead to take the lie of man and trade them and keep the lies of men rather than deal with the truth of God. And in Romans 2 verse 8, men do not obey the truth. It's true that what may be known of God is evident within, but sinful man exchanges the truth for a lie. What may be known of God is evident in creation, but sinful man instead, as you can see in Romans chapter 1, verses uh, 23, 24, 22, 23, 24 there, they, instead they seize the creation that declares the glory of God. And what did they do with it? They worshipped it as God instead. So God says, here's my whole creation that you can see it declares and shouts that I exist. And sinful man says, that's what we'll worship, the creature, not the creator. What may be known of God is evident in creation, but sinful man seizes it and worships the creation, not the creator. What may be known of God is evident within his word, but sinful man refuses to obey the truth. Sinful man knows both good and evil. That was the lie in the garden. The devil said, you'll be like God, you'll know good and evil. But what he didn't say was that even though you know good and evil, you will never be able to choose for the good and you will always choose for the evil. Sinful man knows what God says, but he always chooses for the evil. In Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's one of the greatest statements in the Bible about the sinfulness of man because it's the fool who is the epitome of sinfulness and just says, no, I will not have God. There is no God who can rule over me. So the question becomes then, how can man know God? How can we know who God is and what God is like if we keep pushing everything away, if we refuse the testimony of creation, if we refuse the testimony of Scripture, how can it happen? That passage you read in Matthew 11, the verses right before that. Listen to what they say. Matthew 11, 25 to 27. Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And listen. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Here's the problem. In our sinfulness, we won't have anything to do with God. In our sinfulness, we reject all of God's testimony about Himself, that we can know Him, and because of the Son, it says, I will reveal my Father to you. Isn't that grace? God in immense grace steps in and says, even in your sinfulness, you won't have anything to do with me. You will deny the creation that testifies about me. You deny my word. So I will step in and I will reveal the Father to you. In 1 Corinthians 1, 19 to 24, the Bible says this. It's written, 
I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, sorry, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and wisdom of God. It's God who reveals himself through the person of Christ. So how do we know God? How do we know what God is like and who God is? It's all found in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the center point. When uh, the writer of Hebrews said, in these last days, the Son, sorry, the Father has revealed himself. Oh, I misquoted it. Take your Bibles and go to Hebrews chapter 1, sorry. Old brain, old memory. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, in many ways. Verse 2, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. In other words, the revelation of God, the perfect final full one, is Christ. So how is it that we can answer the question, who is God and what is like? In Christ. How is it that we can know God? Know him truly, not just know him from a distance, but truly know him in an intimate way. It's through Christ. And that again is the grace of God that gave us that revelation. So God intervenes, and in Christ and through Christ, we come to know God as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. God can be known as the Son reveals the Father to us. God can be known as the foolishness of the gospel is preached, Christ and Him crucified. But all of this just gets us to the starting point. We're asking the question, who is God and what is God like? And we want to know. We, I think it's important for us to understand. Like R.C. Sproul was rebuking that whole audience because they asked a question that really could have been answered if they knew better who God is. Now, I don't know about you, but there is a craving in my heart. I think there should be a craving in all of our hearts to know God and know Him deeply. Uh, take your Bibles and flip over to the book of Isaiah for a second. I was thinking about going here and I kind of crossed it out, but we're going to go here anyway. Isaiah chapter 1. This little passage has a rather particular, special place in my heart because when I first started to study the Bible, I didn't have a clue how to study. Not, I didn't know anything. I just read it. That's all I could do. I didn't know anything about I wasn't a student. I wasn't an English major. I didn't know anything about uh, grammar or anything like that. And I had been given a book of uh, book studies, of word studies by Vines. Vines Expository Word Studies. You know the book? And I remember opening up and I thought, well, I'll start studying somewhere and I'll start in the book of Isaiah. And uh, this opening passage, and I read these words. Uh, let's read from 1 to verse uh, 3. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. And I thought... 
You know the word know seems kind of significant there. So I'll look up in my Vines book on what the word know means in the Old Testament and I scrounge through it and I discovered that the word know means to know by experience. It isn't just a mental knowledge or an intellectual knowledge. It was a relational, experiential knowledge and all of a sudden the passage just became in color for me because I realized what the writer was saying was, listen, an donkey, an donkey, a dog, a donkey and an ox know by experience their master and their owner. But the people of Israel who should have known the Lord their God in a deep and intimate way did not know God. And what R.C. Sproul was rebu- re- rebuking the crowd for, and I heard it in my own heart, was how, do I, how much do I know God? What is he like? Who is this God that we have to do with and deal with? Well, the fullest revelation of God is seen in and through the person and the work of Christ to redeem us. We come to know who God is and what God is like most fully as we consider Christ's work on the cross to redeem us. Now, I don't want to put you to sleep because it is getting late, but formal theology has created systems of organizing biblical information about who God is and what God is like. They call it his attributes, and we were singing a bit about it and reading a bit about it too. And attributes are the inherent characteristics of God revealed in Scripture. The attributes of God are equally true for all the persons of the Trinity. So the same attribute is true of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as all of them. There's no one has a little bit more and one has a little bit less. They all have them equally. And there's two kinds of attributes. Incommunicable and communicable. Trust a theologian to find a foot-long word when he could have used a short one. Basically, it means those things that make God unique and he can't share, and those things that he can share and does share with us. So generally speaking, attributes that God does not share and cannot share are incommunicable. Like, think of diseases, right? Like you can't share it or you can't. That's a simple way to think about it. But here's the thing. You read those theologies and they're great. I've got a whole stack on my shelf of different systematic and biblical theologies. And and if you're really having trouble falling asleep, come on down. I will give you a systematic theology. Go home. You'll be asleep in no time. They're not the most lively reading. And what's more, our Bibles were not put together as systematic theologies. Don't get me wrong. Systematic theologies are tremendously helpful. They take all the information about God under certain categories and topics and they arrange it neatly so you can learn all the things about God's holiness or God's love or God's justice or the person of Christ or who man is. And it's a great way to learn the truths of the Bible in a systematic fashion. But our Bibles weren't written like that and we don't read them like that. So what I did was, I'm a bit of a dummy as most of you already know, so I got on my computer search engine, and I put in God is in quotation marks, and I hit the search button, and 180 things came up. And I scrolled through 180 Bible references, all the things that says God is. Now, some of them didn't really work because it would have part of a sentence that wasn't talking about God's attributes, and some did. And I started categorizing. I thought, well, I'll try the Lord is. So there's 239 of those. So I scrolled through all those, looking at all the things where the Bible verse says the Lord is and give you an answer. I looked at knowing God and all the ones that came on that. And I started putting them all together and creating my own categories about these different things that the Bible says about God. 
It's amazing. If you got some time to kill, or not time to kill, if you want to spend some time wisely, let me rephrase that, that's a great way to do it. Even if you got a strong concordance, go home, open it up, look down, find God is, and start rolling through it and looking at what the Bible says about God. Well, I got hundreds of results, and I began to categorize them all together, and I started realizing that there's some pretty clear topics. And so then I got my systematic theology out, and I pulled open, I started looking up some of those, and with a little help from uh, Wayne Grudem and A.W. Pink and uh, Louis Burkhoff, these old great writers of the Reformed faith, um, we can look at a couple of different things. I want to look at one attribute of God tonight. He is solitary and independent, which takes us right back to Exodus chapter 3. So flip over back in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3, and we'll finish up with this. In Exodus 3, 3 and verse 14, God says to Moses, I am who I am. It's one of the greatest statements of the Bible about who God is. You want to answer the question, who God is? That's a great place to start. I am who I am. Great. What does it mean? I mean, it's, not, it's kind of a cryptic statement. And what you have there, it's, it's God's self-existence. You say, what does that mean? Well, if I took you and, and, and I duct taped your mouth and your nose shut, and you'd say, you know, I'm pretty self-existent. I can exist without anybody else's help. So we'll duct tape your mouth and your nose shut, and we'll leave you on the floor here and see what happens. And I think it's about three or four minutes, you'll be in unconscious, and then if you leave here for what, an hour? No, ten minutes? Five, ten minutes? You'll discover just how non-self-existent you are. You desperately need air. In fact, you'll be ripping that tape off in no time flat, because we need something to exist. But God says to Moses, do you want to know who I am? Who do you tell the people of God that I am? Tell them that I am who I am. Literally, I will be who I will be. It works in both ways, and it simply means this. I exist simply because I exist. I exist because I choose to. I exist because I exist. You cannot start me. You cannot stop me. Nothing can take anything away from me. You can't add anything to me. I am completely solitary and independent. And we love our independence, don't we? But we're nothing like God when it comes to independence. It's one of the greatest truths in the Bible. God's existence is determined by Him and Him alone. I am who I am. I exist because I exist. He's independent of any other outside force or sustainment. He is free. You and I are not free. I don't care how much money you got and how much stuff you've got and how many plane tickets you got. I don't care what you do and where you go. You are not free. You are constrained by the need to eat, the need to breathe, the need to sleep, the need to exercise, the need to go to doctors. Well, that could be debated. You're constrained by all sorts of needs that you have. But God is absolutely free. He exists simply because He exists. And God is exuberantly happy in His free self-existence. God has been and always will be exactly what He is. You can't increase God and you can't decrease. And here's the thing. You say, What's this? how does this help me live my Christian life? Well, let me tell you this much. God is free and independent and He does not need you or me for anything. You say, 
I don't see how that helps me live my Christian life. Well, let me put it this way. God doesn't need you. God delights in you. God doesn't need you, but he desires your company. Why? Because God is lonely? Oh, I read that in a book. I almost tore the book in pieces and threw it away. The rest of the book was still pretty good, but I, so I kept it. But I put a big black mark over that. God is not lonely. God doesn't need you for anything. And you say, how does that help me live my Christian life? Well, it helps like this. When we realize that God in infinite grace, because, not because he had to, not because, you know, the son went up to the father, pardon the expression, put a revolver to the father's head and says, you better create the earth so I have something to do. No. The spirit didn't say to the father, you know what? You guys should figure out some kind of a great plan for something. Maybe you can like, I don't know, create something and then work around with it and, and you can do something with that creation. No. He created all of this world. He created you and I. For a really good purpose. He wanted to show us the glories of the riches of his person. He didn't need us. But he said, you know what? I'm going to create Wes and Jude. And one day when they're going to say, they're going to look towards me and say, wow, what an amazing God. What an awesome and an infinite God. He didn't save you because he needed to save you. He saved you because he wanted to save you. Not for any need of his, but for the greatest need that we have. We have. God is infinite, lo infinitely loving without creation. He's infinitely just without creation. He doesn't need creation to become loving. Like God said, you know what? I, I feel like I should be more loving. You know, so I know what I'll do. I'll create something to love. That'll it. That's all I'll make become loving. No. The Godhead, the three persons of the Trinity, existed in a perfect, beautiful expression of love. Something that we will never fully able to be comprehend because we simply can't. We don't have the capacity for it. He loved. The Father loved the Son. The Son loved the Spirit. And the Spirit loved the Father. They just had this beautiful love. He didn't need us to love. God was infinitely just before creation. I don't mean to, to, to speak in a casual way about God in disrespect. I'm just trying to make the point. But God never ripped off the son when the son wasn't looking. The son never cheated on his father when his father wasn't looking. They were always acting in perfect love and justice with each other. God has omnipotence and omniscience without creation. He was all-knowing. God knew all things there is to know, both actual and possible. So he knew all of creation. He knew the hairs on the top of Rosemary's head. He had them all counted in eons before he created everything. He already knew. He knew every situation that you will face in this life. He knew every single detail about you and beyond anything that you were even capable of knowing of yourself. He knew it. He didn't need to create it to know it. He already knew it. His omnipotence wasn't necessary for creation. He didn't need to create something to become unlimited power. He had it before he created. He was absolutely solitary and independent. Exodus 15, 11, uh, Moses says, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? He was alone. There are no other gods. We did this terrible thing when we were youth group kids. 
well, I did lots of terrible things when I was a youth group kid, but this one in particular for our youth group, we got them all together and we put like a, 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 a Jesus person and a Muslim and a, a different other person and we sort of played pick the right religion. And I realize now that we actually portrayed a horribly inaccurate message to those youth group kids. We had in mind to show how Christianity trumps them all, which it does. But in, in, in invert, what's the right word? Uh, without meaning to, what we did was we portrayed that Christianity is one amongst several options. And the reality is all the other options are utterly self-centered and man-centered and unreal and false. And only God is the true God. Moses said, who is like you among the gods? For what God in heaven or on earth can do such works and mighty acts as yours? In Deuteronomy 32 God is speaking to Moses and he says, See now that I, I am he and there is no God besides me. He's solitary and he's independent. There are no other gods like our God. In 2 Samuel 7, For this reason you are great, O Lord God. There is none like you. 2 Chronicles 6, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant, showing loving kindness to your servant who walk with you all, with all their heart, who has kept your servant David, the promises he made to him, and so on. There's no God like you. Psalm 50, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the fields is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all it contains. What's he saying? Everything is his. He doesn't share ownership with the world with some other deities or some other powers that existence. He is solitary and independent as God and God alone. Who is God He's solitary. Who is he? He's independent. He's free. He's omniscient. There's so many other ways to describe God. In the weeks to come, we'll start diving into him. But I want to make this point again. God did not need us, not even a little bit. But God did not create us out of some sense of loneliness. God created man to display the glory of himself as all-powerful, all-knowing, all gracious, kind God. He created us because he simply delighted to do it so he could show off who he is. You say, that's kind of like, it's kind of like an old lady. I'll use C.S. Lewis's description. He says, like an old lady who keeps making batches of scones to give everybody to try and win some praise from people. Oh, try my scones. They're the best scones. I've won prizes for my scones. Go and try my scones. And, and you take them and they taste like sawdust that's been molded up a little bit. And they're horrible. And this dear little lady keeps making these scones in a vain attempt to win praise and win response from people. That is not what God is like. God is the most beautiful exalted, supreme beings in all of existence. He is absolutely perfect in every detail. And when He created us and saved us, it was so He could pull back the veil and display all of His glory to His creatures. And His creatures could respond and say, How great are You, O our God. God created man knowing full well what we would do. He created us to save us, to display the glories of the riches of His grace to us. Listen to this. This is I want to close. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. 
You and I often find reasons to boast, don't we? We're sure proud of our income and we're proud of our intellect. And we get a degree from somewhere and we put the degree up on the wall so everybody can see it and know how smart we are not. And we think we're, we're something. We're pretty good, right? This is what Jeremiah says. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might or his strength. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, who exercises loving kindness and justice and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Do you catch his circular reasoning there? His circular logic? Let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. How are we going to understand and know God? That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness. You know the Lord because God revealed himself to you. You know God because he opened the doors of your heart. He opened the eyes of your mind and your heart to see how wonderful he is. So if you're going to boast in anything, boast in the fact that you know me. And the only way you know me is not because you're smart or you're wise or you're intelligent. It's because God opened your eyes to see. You say, what is all this all about? The question, who is God? What is he like? He is the greatest of all and he is gracious. It highlights and drives home that God is so gracious that he was willing to reveal himself to his people. What an amazing God we have. And I think R.C. Sproul and his frustration was, it was a question that was asked that impugned God. How could God's judgment of man for sin be so severe? And his answer was, God's judgment of man was so gracious, it should have been infinitely more severe. And the reason why that person, whoever asked the question, made such an ignorant, say it in a kind way, not a, not a nasty way, made an ignorant statement was he simply did not know who God is and who he was. And brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but there is a craving in my heart to understand and know this God that we have been privileged to be brought into a relationship with. It's kind of like a marriage ceremony. Thinking of last, yesterday's wedding. What a tragedy if they got married and Harry took uh, Megan back to the palace and he led her down a long corridor and he opened the door and he said, well, here you go. Here's your new home. And she says, well, where are you going to live? Well, you see that palace way off in the distance. I'm going to live there. But you live here. We're married. There's a relationship. You'll still be the Duchess of Sussex or whatever she is now. You'll still be royalty. They'll still call you your royal highness. There'll still be servants and all the blessings of royalty. But I'm going to live in that palace way off across in the distance. And he walked away never to go back. You know what the tragedy is? So many of us come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, and He doesn't walk us to a room. We head off by ourselves and we decide, you know what? I know God enough to be saved. I can forget the rest. And we pass up on so much of what you were saying a minute ago. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. And what none of us have quite figured out yet is that delighting, desiring, giving circle will never end. 
And all through eternity, as we come to know more and more and more and more of God, the, desire, the, the delight, desire, and give will just get bigger and bigger and we'll learn more and more, but we'll never come to the end. Isn't that a great God? All right. Why don't we, uh, it's 20 to 8, so we'll just leave a last song off. We'll just give, give thanks to God for a good day and we'll close in prayer. Loving Father, thank you so much for grace so great, so rich and so free. Father, thank you that you did not need us, that your love within the Godhead was perfect and complete and infinitely deeper than anything we can comprehend. Father, we realize that you did not need to create us, you were not lonely. But Father, when we realize that you were completely independent and completely solitary and satisfied in that, in your freedom, and yet you desire to create all of the universe, you desire to create this little dot we call earth and people up with us, Father, that you might display the glory of your grace to us as you sent the Lord Jesus Christ in indescribable condescension to walk this earth, to live on this earth, to take our sin upon himself and to suffer and bear him on a cross and to die in our place. That he might reveal you to us, that he might introduce, as it were, us to you, that we might see the wonders and the glories of your grace, the riches of your grace. Father, help us to follow the example of Kumar tonight and to delight ourselves in you, knowing that when we do, you will give us the desires of our heart. Father, thank you for the scriptures that just tell us from cover to cover about the Lord Jesus Christ. And in seeing him, we can know who you are and what you are like. Father, we thank you and we plead with you for our help. Lord, as we go into this world, back to jobs and, and school and homes and different worlds that we have to live in. Father, we pray that you would give us peace, give us a joy in knowing you as we walk through this world. Father, help us that we might glorify you in everything we do. And Father, we ask you all these things and we give thanks in our Savior's precious name. Amen.